The following message is from Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found at emmanuelcommunity.org. Well, we're continuing on in the Sermon on the Mount series, and as I said, we're uh, kind of rounding the last corner here, and we're nearing the end. And one of the ways that we know that we're nearing the end is because of the verse that we're going to look at today. Now, I try to avoid a lot of jargon and a lot of kind of technical stuff when I preach, but I think actually this is where I'm going to sort of peel the covers back and give a little seminary talk to you here and show you what's going on here literarily so that you can understand what's happening in the verse we're looking at today. Because the Bible often uses a literary technique known as an inclusio, an inclusio. And what that means is that it brackets a certain passage of, the, of Scripture with a phrase that's very similar on the front end and on the back end. It, you can kind of think of it as bookends for whatever the passages that's being captured there. And whatever is said in those bookends basically is the theme of everything that's in the middle. It's basically telling you this is what's important about what's being said right now, okay? That's called an inclusio. So let me give you an example of one that actually occurs in the Sermon on the Mount that will kind of help you to wrap your mind around this literary device. If you look at the Beatitudes, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, there's this wonderful inclusio. And so the Beatitudes covers Matthew 5, verses 3 to 10. And in the very first Beatitude, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then it says, For theirs is the kingdom of God. And then if you fast forward to the very end of the Beatitudes in verse 10, it says this in the last Beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And then look at the repetition. For theirs is the kingdom of God. So the Beatitudes are bracketed with this promise that you will inherit the kingdom of God. And so what that means is that there are these other promises found in the Beatitudes, like you will be comforted, you will be shown mercy, you will see God. But what the bracketing inclusio is telling us is, all of these promises are simply different ways of saying that this is what it means to enter the kingdom of God or the kingdom of the heavens, which is basically synonymous, okay? So that's how an inclusio functions. Right after the Beatitudes, actually, there's another inclusio, and the front bookend is found in Matthew 5, verse 17 to 20, and it reads like this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So as Jesus is entering into his public ministry, there's a lot of this confusion among the Jews as to how they are supposed to take his teaching and connect it with everything else they've been taught in the Old Testament about what God wants. 
And at the start of the series, I said that this term, the law and the prophets, is basically Jewish shorthand for, in essence, summarizing the entirety of the Old Testament. And what Jesus tells them in this sermon is, I did not come to abolish the Old Testament law, but to fulfill it. What we know in the Old Testament is that Moses gathered the Israelites around Mount Sinai where God would give through Moses these Ten Commandments and then eventually the entire Old Testament law. And so it is not by accident but very intentional that Jesus also goes up to a mountain and gathers his disciples and just like Moses receiving the law from God, Jesus now gives his teaching to his disciples. He's making a parallel with Moses here. And what he is saying in these teachings, in essence, is my teaching is greater than Moses' teaching. I have come to fulfill everything that Moses taught in the Old Testament. And so then everything that follows in Matthew 5 through 7 are basically examples of what this righteous life looks like according to the perspective of Jesus. And then we get to Matthew 7, verse 12, which is the closing bookend of everything. And in Matthew verse 7, 12, it says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. And so by bracketing the Sermon on the Mount with this idea of fulfilling the law and the prophets or the Old Testament, what Jesus is telling his disciples is this. You will, in essence, have obeyed everything that God wants of you, everything taught in the Old Testament law, if you just follow this command to do to others what others, what you would want others to do to you. He says, basically, that is the Old Testament summed up in a single teaching, and that is amazing. This is what is known as the golden rule. And variations of it are found throughout the, the New Testament. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 40, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, there's that phrase again, all the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, what Jesus is saying is treating others as you would want them to treat you, as, as you would want to be treated, is the same as loving your neighbor. It's the same command there. And the entire Old Testament, Jesus says, can be summed up by these two commands, love God and love your neighbor. James refers to this as the royal law in James chapter 2, verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Paul, in his letters, echoes the same truth. In Romans chapter 13, verse 9 to 10, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to, neighbor, to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. 
And again, in his letter to the Galatians, in chapter, three, in chapter 5, verse 13 to 14, it says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. I think what all of these verses are saying is this. Listen. Whatever confusion you experience when you read the Bible, there are these powerful, clarifying statements that tell us this is what it is all about, simply loving God and loving others. There are two aspects of this golden rule that is the wording found here in Matthew 7, verse 12, though, that I want to highlight in the message today. The first one is simply this. Our self-interest teaches us how we ought to love others. Our self-interest teaches us how we ought to love others. Let me start with a, a story that at first maybe seems like it doesn't have any connection with this teaching, but just bear with me and hopefully you'll see the point. From past sermons you might have heard, um, I've actually had this lifelong fascination with mountain climbing. It's just bizarre to me, these people who will literally risk their life in the most extreme environments found on earth to climb the highest peaks on earth, uh, basically risking their very own lives to do these amazing feats. Well, back in 1985, two British mountain climbing friends, Joe Simpson and Simon Yates, uh, traveled to this remote part of Peru to climb the west face of a 21,000-foot peak known as the Ciula Grande. And what happened as a result of that climbing attempt became climbing legend over the years. No one had ever successfully summited the west face of this mountain. And these two guys decided they were going to do it in a single day, go up, summit, and then come down in just one day. And they actually reached the top of the mountain in that day. But as they were descending the mountain, a horrible tragedy happened. Joe slipped, and he jammed as he was falling his foot, his leg, into the snow. And he shattered one of his legs. Uh, speaking medically, the shaft of his tibia literally rammed through his femur. And destroyed his knee so that one bone speared the other bone. <laughs> you can imagine how painful an injury like that would have been. Um, and so they tied themselves to one another with a 300-foot cord of rope. And Joe went down first with his broken leg, just basically crawling down the best he could while Simon would let out the rope and anchor himself to keep them both from falling down this mountain. Evening approached on that same day, and a storm hit where there were negative 80-degree wind chill factor hitting, and it became dark. And he realized that the line suddenly became very taut, and he tried for 90 minutes to pull Joe back to him. 
but he could not budge that rope an inch. And no matter how much he called out to Joe, Joe didn't answer. And eventually he realized that he had lowered Joe over an ice shelf onto a cliff edge and that Joe was now dangling on this cliff. And with this night coming and the storm hitting and fighting this for over an hour, Simon finally came to the difficult conclusion that he was not going to be able to save his friend Joe. And so he made the difficult decision of taking out his knife and cutting Joe's line to what he assumed would be Joe plummeting to his death. The next morning, Simon descended the mountain, and he looked at the cliff edge where Joe had fallen. And to his horror, he saw that below the cliff was this enormous crevasse of ice that went down into the dark hole that seemed to be bottomless. And so he was certain that Joe had died. And he then made the difficult journey over miles of difficult glacier to get back to his base camp where another friend was waiting for them. The crazy thing, though, is that Joe didn't die from the fall. <laughs> Somehow he survived. And Joe realized that there was no way with his broken leg that he was going to be able to climb up this crevasse. And so against all of his instincts and absolutely terrified, he began to lower himself into the blackness of this crevasse to see where it might lead. And he went down about 100 feet into the darkness when suddenly as he neared the bottom, he saw this tiny pinpoint of light. And he realized that there might be actually an escape out of this chasm. And on his belly with a shattered leg, he crawled out of it to the outside. But he realized that this was only the beginning of what was going to be the most horrendous journey of his life. As for miles and miles over the most treacherous glacier terrain, he would crawl on his stomach for days without any food or water, dehydrated and hungry and near exhaustion and with an excruciating pain of a shattered leg. He did this day after day. And by the third day, when he was in so much pain and he was hallucinating and he was so thirsty that he didn't think he could go on, he was about to just give up and die on that glacier. But this is what motivated him. He said, I didn't want to die alone on this ice shelf. It just was such a pathetic thought for him that he was, his body would just be there unfound forever. And so it motivated him to get started again so that he ended up walking another two days, five days without food or water, crawling on the shattered leg until finally he reached base camp. And he began to scream out Simon's name, Simon, Simon. Simon is at base camp, and his fingers have now turned black because of the frostbite, and he was in desperate need to get medical attention. But for some reason, Simon refused to leave base camp. I think part of it was that he was so filled with guilt for abandoning his friend Joe that he just couldn't bring himself to leave that mountainside. And so he stayed all five of those days refusing to leave. And so it was really like a second miracle 
took place by the fact that they were still at that base camp there to rescue their friend Joe. And so it was really another miracle. Now, why am I sharing this story with you? It's because I love mountain climbing, and I thought it was a great story. Now, um, So what is so extraordinary, why this story became climbing legend is really because when expert climbers hear this story, they think this was impossible. This was not physically possible for a human being to do this. And the fact that both Joe and Simon survived this incredible ordeal, and Joe particularly demonstrated this incredible physical feat of making it back to base camp on that shattered leg, uh, is what's so remarkable and extraordinary about this story. But here is the thing, and this is why I share it. What I think is actually more understandable and relatable to us is that really what it involved was nothing more than an act of self-preservation. These are two men that did not want to die. And so they would do whatever it took out of the desire to survive. Basically, they loved themselves enough to go through this on their own behalf. So that even when Joe couldn't go any further, what motivated him was simply he didn't want to die alone. He wanted to die in the company of others. And I think the reason why we can relate to that aspect of the story is because just about everything we do at some level is motivated by that same self-interest, isn't it? I mean, the, let's be honest here. Even though you would not have the physical strength to do what Joe and Simon did, I think if you were in that exact same situation, you would at least attempt it, wouldn't you? You wouldn't just lie there and say, okay, I'm just going to die quietly here. I think you would at least use whatever resources were available to try to save your own life. And I bet you there are many other ways that each of us have gone through extraordinary measures in our life to love ourselves and to take care of ourselves in certain ways. Self-love is why we get up every morning and do our hair in a way that we think makes us look nice and why we bathe ourselves and practice good hygiene and why we put on clothes that we think make us look good. It's why we eat the foods that we want to eat and, frankly, deny ourselves from eating the things that we want to eat as we diet to have the kind of body that we want to have. Whether we eat or not eat, it is out of self-love. It's why we hang out with certain people and avoid other people. It's why we choose one job opportunity over another. Just about everything, in other words, that we do in life is driven by self-interest. It's the air we breathe. Here's the thing. When you see someone do something that doesn't make sense to you, when their behavior seems kind of odd, one of the best ways to get down to the bottom of why they're doing that is to look at it from the perspective of self-interest. What's in it for them? Why are they doing this? As parents, you become really skilled at this, don't you? Why is my kid acting so nice today? And why did he make his bed? 
when he never does. Oh, you find out in the afternoon. It's because he wants to sleep over at his friend's house this weekend. And so this is in essence what Jesus is saying through the golden rule. You know, all of that skill, all of that wisdom that you have honed over years of carefully loving yourself and making sure that your needs are met and making sure that life goes the way you want it to, he says, take all of that skill and wisdom of loving yourself and apply it to other people. Love them in that way. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that the disciple of Jesus ought to constantly be asking this singular question. How would I want to be treated in this situation? How would I want them to treat me? I think at the heart of this golden rule is the spirit of empathy and compassion. Putting ourselves in the shoes of others and treating them as we ourselves would want to be treated if we were facing the same thing they did. When you realize that you've gossiped against someone and that person found out what you said about them, how would you want that person to treat you? When you've wrongly accused someone of something that they didn't do and you've made that mistake, how would you want to be treated? When you break a promise, when you miss a birthday, when you get caught in a lie, how do you want to be treated? Well, Jesus says, treat them in that same way that you would want to be treated. Let me say a further word on this. I would say this, if I'm trying to bring an honest moment to us all here, because you can hear all they go, yeah, I know this. That's like Christianity 101. Say, yeah, amen. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What I want to say is this. I think there is a lot more resistance in our heart to this teaching than most of us would acknowledge. And our resistance to this golden rule is really driven by the fact that through so much of our life, we are taught that love is conditional, that it must be deserved, that it must be earned, that there are some settings where love is appropriate, but other situations where the totally wrong thing to do is to show love to a person. Because if someone gossips about us, if someone wrongly accuses us, if someone breaks a promise with us or lies to us, let's be honest here. Love is not the first thing that comes to mind as a response. I think in our logic, in our instinct, what we say is what's needed here is not love but truth. What's needed here is a reckoning. We need confrontation. We need the truth to come out in order to set things right. Love is not involved in this. But I think what Jesus is trying to get us to understand is even when we think this way toward others, this is not the way self-love operates in our minds. Because in general, we do not feel the need to justify or earn our own self-love, do we? that we offer ourselves so freely. And the truth is, we know our own failures and shortcomings better than anyone does. We know all of our own lies and secrets. 
We even may be disappointed with ourselves. But the truth is, nevertheless, we keep acting out of self-interest to benefit ourselves. And I think what Jesus is saying is that same energy that you put to loving yourself, love one another, love others with that same unconditional spirit. The second thing that I want to say about this golden rule is this. We ought to actively seek the good of others, not simply refraining from harm against them. You know, it's interesting. If you actually look historically, there is a teaching that is very similar to Jesus' golden rule, already being taught by Jewish rabbis even before Jesus showed up on the scene. And historians call it the silver rule. <laughs> Let me quote Rabbi Hillel, who preceded Jesus, uh, who talked about this silver rule. And it says, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow creatures. That is the whole law. All else is explanation. So it's basically the golden rule expressed in its negative form. Don't do to others what you would not want them to do to you. Doctors know this because we have a version of it, right? In the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. Do no harm. And some would argue that there really isn't much difference between the silver rule and the golden rule. They're just kind of like opposite sides of the same coin. I think I would actually argue that there is quite a significant difference between these two. Because the silver rule basically says, just avoid harming others. But the golden rule says, actively seek the good of others. D.A. Carson explains it like this in his commentary. The difference between the silver rule and the golden rule is profound. For example, the negative form would teach behavior like this. If you do not enjoy being robbed, don't rob others. If you do not like being cursed, don't curse others. If you do not enjoy being hated, don't hate others. However, the positive form teaches behavior like this. If you enjoy being loved, love others. If you like to receive things, give to others. If you like being appreciated, appreciate others. The positive form is thus far more searching than its negative counterpart. Here, there is no permission to withdraw into a world where I offend no one, but accomplish no positive good either. What would you like done to you? What would you really like? Then do that to others. I want to say this. I think this idea of active pursuing love is particularly difficult to do when we encounter problems in relationships with others. Because when we're struggling with someone, Love isn't something that we turn to as a solution to the problem. I would even argue that for most of us, we feel the need to suspend love with that person. In fact, to intentionally create distance with that person until we can resolve that conflict with them. In fact, I would even add further that the thought of expressively expressing active love to someone in that setting of a broken relationship would even to many of us seem harmful to that situation. You know, what if I show them love and it sends the wrong message 
What if they misinterpret my love as rewarding bad behavior? What if the other person thinks that in my demonstrating love to them, it means everything is okay when it really is not okay? And my love, they equate with, well, I guess I don't need to apologize. But you do need to apologize. You know, I, I think our logic goes something like this. Listen, there's the carrot and the stick, right? And sometimes you do give people the carrot. But the truth is, sometimes you got to wave the stick. And what better way to get that message across that you're not happy with someone than to withhold love from them? Withholding love is an incredibly powerful weapon that we can use against others. This is our logic. But Jesus goes against this logic. And what he is saying is something utterly radical when he says there is never a valid situation within which you ought to withdraw love to a person. And he forcefully drives this point across when he says in this sermon, love even your enemies who are trying to hurt you. Now, I want to qualify this a little bit, okay? Because I think there are times when we do, in fact, need to create healthy boundaries in unhealthy relationships. I validate that. And I would even say there are times when we do need to confront people with the truth as part of the process of reconciliation. All of that is very real and very valid. Love is not the same thing as permissiveness or turning a blind eye to injustice. But I think Jesus' point is this. Even as you may seek that justice or reconciliation, you ought to still nevertheless have goodwill toward everyone. And in that goodwill, even take active steps to be the source of that goodwill toward them. And I think that's what is so radical about the teaching of Jesus. Is in this world, everything you're taught is that love is conditional. But what is so unique about Jesus' teaching on love is that he says it is unconditional. There is never a person that is undeserving of your love. Never a situation in which love is not called for. But in every way, the disciple of Jesus will show love. To others. No one has to earn or deserve your love, not even your enemy. Listen, I will be the first one to acknowledge that sometimes my sermons are very confusing. I know that because my wife tells me that all the time. This is not one of those messages, okay? It doesn't get more straightforward than this. Treat others as you yourself would want to be treated by them. The struggle to accept this teaching is not that it is hard to understand. Why many of us find it hard to accept this teaching is because we're not sure we agree with Jesus on this matter. It's an issue of faith. I think we look at this and say, I don't know, Jesus. I don't really know if that's going to lead to the kind of life of flourishing that I want for myself. 
Dallas Willard, um, you know, what would be a Sermon on the Mount sermon without quoting Dallas Willard at least once? And you thought I would end the sermon without one. But this is not from the divine conspiracy. I'm going to change things up here and quote from another book of his called Knowing Christ Today. He says this. The dark truth is that we may praise love. We may wish to be loving, to be kind and helpful in our relations to those near us. But we do not trust love. And we think that it could easily ruin our carefully guarded hold on life. Many misunderstandings of what love is have to be worked through before one can come to peace in it. Evil has a vested interest in confusing and distorting love. Above all, one has to find by thought and experience that love can be trusted as a way of life. And that's what I would simply challenge you with this morning. Do you trust love? Do you really believe that unconditional love as taught by Jesus is really the way to the life that you want? Because even as Christians, I think instinctively, we feel threatened by that kind of love. It doesn't get the job done. It feels too weak. And I think there is no way that we can embrace this kind of love unless we realize that this is the love that God has poured out on us. As Paul says to the Romans, while you were yet enemies of God, he showed his love for you by giving you his son. Jesus Christ. This is the love that God has poured out on us. Do you know this kind of love in your life? Let me close with a story. Um, I have someone that actually I consider to be a pretty dear friend. Uh, someone that I would openly say I really love dearly. But here's the thing. Um, he came to this moment in his life where he really needed his closest friendships to lean on because he was going through hell. <laughs> um, I can't say it any other way. And the sad confession I make to you is that I wasn't really there for him during that time. And it was always on the back of my mind, oh, I got to call him up. I got to ask him how he's doing. I got to tell him that I'm praying for him and I care about him. And I, I actually, I need to not just do that, but I need to visit him and be with him. But I did none of that. And as the months went on and his crisis did not relent and things even got worse in his life, I felt the greater and greater crushing weight of guilt that I had not reached out to him. But you know the problem, right? Now the problem is so much time has lapsed that I feel so much shame and embarrassment that I can't bring myself to come to him and say, I'm here for you. Because I felt like, well, where were you these last six months? And so my silence continued with him. And then a year passed, and two years passed, and I stopped totally calling him anymore. Stopped meeting up with him because of the shame of what I felt in abandoning him. But here was the really amazing thing. It was about two years into this. He reached out to me 
And he said to me, I so deeply cherish our friendship. And I don't know what's going on with you, but I am really hurting here. And would love to just have a meal with you. And you don't know what that felt like to receive that text of both relief and crushing shame. That he was the one that had to make the first step in connecting with me. And so I went to his house and he prepared dinner for me. And the crazy thing was, even as I was driving to his house, I was thinking about what I would say to him to try to make the guilt seem less offensive as to why it was justifiable that I had abandoned him during that time. But as I got closer to his house, any attempt at justification seemed so cheap and empty. So that when I finally arrived at his house, he met me with a big smile. And I just said, I am so, so sorry for not being there for you during one of your times of greatest need in your life. And he was honest. He said, it hurt a lot. But then he said, all is forgiven. All is forgiven. And in that moment, I experienced this kind of love that Jesus is talking about. To treat others as you would want to be treated yourself. I can't think of what it cost him to do that. I wonder if I could have done the same thing to someone who treated me the way I treated him. And yet this is the love of God that only he can give to us. Let's pray. Thank you.